Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 56. December 1981 brought the usual debriefings and analysis about how the border war was progressing, particularly after a year that saw such highs and lows for the SADF. However, before the end of the year, the SADF ordered another small operation called Flinder to hit the area near Ivali, over the cutline. In one of the final acts of the year, troops were in contact with Swapo armed with SA-7 missiles and RPGs near the town. One of the troops was hit by shrapnel from an 82mm mortar and was in a serious condition. He needed to be Kazavak. Lieutenant Arthur Walker led a two-ship Alouette formation to the scene and provided top cover for Lieutenant Serge Bovey, who was to carry out the pickup. Ground troops marked the LZ with a white phosphorus grenade, which tends to burn anything and produces a great deal of smoke. Lieutenant Bovey approached to land when Walker's Alouettes lurched sideways to avoid enemy ground fire. Heavy AA weapons were targeting the two choppers, and Bovey watched the traces rip past his helicopter. Then he flared to land, and on touchdown, two troops loaded the Kazavak into the helicopter, while the rest of the platoon formed a defensive circle around the Alouette. The chopper was now heavy, so it took many seconds to lift off, and even longer to transition from vertical to forward speed. As Bovey banked away from the enemy positions, his blood froze. There were two 14.5mm anti-aircraft guns firing straight at him from virtually point-blank, 100 metres away. The Alouette was hit by rounds passing through the door, another removed the top of the instrument panel, and a third ripped through his flight suit but missed his leg by a centimetre. The damaged Alouette continued turning away from the AA guns, flying with the cockpit just below the level of the treetops, but leaving the rotors above the branches. But the Alouette was on fire, and electrical sparks were jumping along the damaged instrument panel. The anti-aircraft fire continued hitting the port side door and the co-pilot's seat. Bobby's armoured seat was also hit from behind, bouncing him briskly back and forth in a kind of crazy rodeo of 14.5mm power. The engine was coughing, the rotor blades slowed, the controls were stiffening and Bovey was about to crash. He flared to dig the tail into the ground but then spotted a large tree and deflected the cyclic and rudder to the right at the last moment. After impact the Alouette came to rest on its side. Flight engineer Dolph van Rensburg was lying in a small space between the door and Bovey's chair, bleeding from his mouth, but he was alert and said he was okay. Bovey unstrapped and felt a sharp pain in his back. It was injured. Still, he managed to punch out a window and jumped from the chopper, joined moments later by Van Rensburg. The Kazavak was now trapped in the wreckage, and he was dead. They had to leave him because Swapo were heading their way. Mortars began dropping around the Alouette as Bovey and Van Rensburg legged it into thicker bush nearby. Suddenly, they spotted a Swapo soldier with an AK-47 a short distance away. He was firing into the air at the other Alouette, his attention fixated on Walker's chopper. He didn't see the two South Africans hiding in the bush a mere 50 metres away. Van Rensburg wanted to shoot him, but Bovey refused, saying they should remain silent because it was their only hope of escape. That didn't last long. AK-47 and machine gun rounds began to bounce off the trees and the ground nearby. The enemy was following their spur. Meanwhile, overhead, Lieutenant Walker had watched his number two crash and burn, but then Sergeant Burtis, his gunner, spotted the two men on the ground. Despite the heavy AA fire, Walker landed his Alouette nearby in a tight LZ opening and both Bovey and Van Rensburg were pulled on board. Walker then somehow managed to take off with an overloaded Alouette and made it safely back to base. And for his courage, 
He was awarded the Honoris Crux Gold, becoming the only person with a double award of the coveted honour. And so, 1981 ended with mixed results. The year had ushered in several developments which caused the war to escalate. Before Operation Protea and DAISY, the fighting had been ostensibly between the SADF and SWAPU. After Operation Protea and then DAISY, the strategy changed on both sides. Pretoria was supporting UNITA directly, and the MPLA government realised that while it did not want to declare war on South Africa, it had to respond to the impact of Pretoria's interference in their backyard. Before Protea, only 3-2 Battalion had consistently clashed with FAPLA, even though their standing orders were to avoid conflict with the Angolans. After 1981, the sporadic fighting between FAPLA and the SADF was replaced by a period of direct conflict. Swapo had used FAPLA's protection by retreating rapidly in the face of the South African invasions and then taking up positions alongside FAPLA. By the time the SADF raided Zangongo and Onjiva, the mixing of FAPLA and Swapo meant there was no way for the South Africans to attack Swapo without attacking FAPLA. This had an effect on how the war was going to be planned by Pretoria. The unconventional operations, the patrols being walked south of the cutline, were aimed at Swapo. From now on, all operations north of the border were directed at both the MPLA and Swapo. The SEDF had also now moved systematically into southern Angola, particularly Kuneni province, where they were to have a permanent presence until the end of the war. After Protea, the main conventional mechanized groups were pulled out, but counterinsurgency forces stayed behind to fight alongside UNITA. By 1981, 3-2 Battalion had controlled the eastern Kuneni and western Kuando areas, but now this was extended to the western Kuneni as well. And global diplomacy and real politic was growing more important right now. The United States had just vetoed a UN resolution condemning Pretoria for Operation Pretoria, and curiously, Cuba's response was also somewhat muted despite their soldiers being affected by the operation. Swapo had been dealt a series of blows, particularly by Ops Carnation and Pretoria, and they had plans to counter-strike. The armed ring plan had lost Zangongo, Humbe and Onjiva. 3-2 Battalion was now ensconced in the Kaneni area, and a semi-permanent presence of light mobile search and destroy teams were maintained almost 100 kilometers into Angola. The airfield at Onjiva was repaired and resurfaced for use by South African Air Force aircraft. Plan was forced to take a long detour if they wanted to strike areas south of this region, then they'd also be running a gauntlet of 3-2 and other specialist forces trying to detect their movement. By December, the death toll amounted to around 2,500 FAPLA and SWAPLA, as well as 56 SADF members. But civilians in Avambaland and the Triangle of Death had suffered enormously. 92 had died at the hands of SWAPLA directly, 62 others were killed in landmine explosions, and over 100 were abducted to Angola, or had left voluntarily. The SADF wasn't sure either way. Politically, South Africa was trying to extricate itself from Southwest Africa without handing over the territory to Swapo. That was because it was likely to bring the ANC to its northern borders, both in Zimbabwe and Southwest Africa. Prime Minister P.W. Boto felt bound by the commitment made by his predecessor B.J. Foster to support an autonomous Southwest Africa, or Namibia, as it was likely to be called. Boerter had been working on creating a viable, moderate political alternative to Swapo. Boerter also wanted to ensure that a future Namibia would be committed to close military and security links with South Africa. While this was the overarching goal, Pretoria became expert at forestalling discussions on an internal settlement the longer the war in Angola continued. 
Porter's government demanded the withdrawal of the Cubans and Russians as a precondition of Namibian independence. Victoria said the Cuban presence in Angola constituted a legitimate security concern for Southwest Africa. Most Western countries at the time supported this assertion, particularly the United States and its Secretary of State Chester Crocker, who accused the Soviets and Cubans of military adventurism. Swapu's position was that Pretoria should stop tying their own independence to another country's civil war. France, however, was pressurizing both Pretoria and Washington to drop the demand about Cuba, saying that the Namibians were being held hostage by U.S. foreign policy goals. Havana, for its part, interpreted Pretoria's comments as proof that South Africa was merely an American pawn and part of Washington's obsession with Cuban interests around the world. P.W. Boerter and his foreign minister, Pick Boerter, had been trying to convince other African countries that having the Russians and Cubans lurking around Africa was tantamount to signing up for colonialism 2.1. Boerter called on Africa to say to the Cubans to go home and say to the Russians, go home, and the minute this happens, I will be prepared to settle all our military forces inside South Africa. However, the apartheid state was not exactly the best messenger for this message, as you can well imagine. There was an all-white government which denied the vote to its majority black population preaching to Africa about colonialism. Whatever your political beliefs, folks, you can see the significant problem with this communication methodology. It is somewhat illogical, to put it mildly. As you'll hear in a forthcoming podcast, Crocker would eventually meet Soviet Deputy Foreign Minister Leonard Ilyichev for talks about what to do about the Cubans and Namibia. So, the new year 1982 began with the enemy demonstrating an aggressive intent and some bad news for the SA Air Force, which was going to get worse before the month was out. Politically, this was also the year that the country was supposed to march towards independence and its name be changed to Southwest Africa Namibia or SWA Namibia. A number of incidents shook the SADF early in 1982. On the 5th of January, an SAF was Puma was shot down over the cutline and Captain Robinson, Lieutenant Earp and Sergeant Dalglish were all killed. All signs indicated that the yearly incursion into Southwest Africa was about to begin and the bloodshed would continue. A few days later, two Natal-based national servicemen died in a contact. Two weeks later, two more were killed in a landmine explosion. The next day, three SADF soldiers died in another landmine blast Two of them were twin brothers. The SADF for some reason had allowed these two to serve together very much against military doctrine and the shock for their family must have been immeasurable, but apparently they refused to be separated. The SADF never allowed twins to serve together in a combat zone again. A few days later, two more soldiers were shot dead by Swapo in another contact. Plan was also changing its tactics and looking for quiet zones to shake up the South Africans. They hit the Olukula area, 11 kilometers south of Beacon 36 in January 1982. This area had experienced no swapper action for two years, thanks to Project Spiderweb, where the SADF had bolstered intelligence and other systems in the area. But a platoon from 8SI that was patrolling was in for a rude awakening on the 27th of January, when a swapper attack left three more South Africans dead. They had been taken completely by surprise. Intelligence officers were convinced that the attack was the work of Swapu's Far East Detachment, which had now infiltrated from the north of Beacon 36. Air reconnaissance and intel from UNITA indicated a plentiful supply of water existed at China, Chanadenge, 
that's 30 kilometers north of the beacon. UNITA had also reported a possible Swapo base close to the China and a second which lay 45 kilometers south of Yonde. On the 17th of February, 3-2 Battalion's entire reconnaissance wing was divided into eight teams and they set off from Omouni in a convoy. They were to conduct a small operation codenamed Olifot, Olive Wood. They were carrying spare diesel and aviation fuel in case they'd be stuck north of the border for any length of time. The recon wings were looking for these Swapo bases, if indeed they existed. Five days later, a 3-2 foot patrol made contact one morning with a small group of Swapo near Ionde, killing one and wounding a second. And yet, ten days later, the recon wings had found no other Swapo, and on the 27th of February, they stopped at China Mokapa for resupply. Operating procedure entailed that the vehicles be drawn into a lager and camouflaged, with Captain Willem Ratter's command vehicle in the centre. Sergeant Phil Smith, who was leader of Team 8, flew out on one of the resupply choppers to head home. His wife was about to have a baby. Considering what happened next, he was one very lucky soldier. The rest of the group remained in position waiting for nightfall, but at dusk, around 1800, two SA Air Force Impala ground support planes passed overhead, and the ground troops noted they appeared to be in attack mode. A terrible series of events was about to take place. The flight leader in one of the Impalas opened fire on the lager with his 30mm cannon. Shocked, Sergeant Mark Craig was struggling to comprehend what was going on. My first thought was that this isn't happening, but the screams of the injured and the roaring afterburners of the jets as they pulled up told me I was in serious trouble. A half dozen vehicles were already burning, there was smoke everywhere, and Captain Ratter's command truck had taken the brunt of the attack. All around, fuel drums were exploding. Some were thrown high into the air, adding to the chaos. There had been no radio contact between the ground force and the air force. Things could have been far worse had the number two Impala not realized that they were attacking friends. So the Impalas broke off and flew away. And yet the damage was done. Rifleman S. Hafeni was dead. A 30mm round passed through his chest. 17 other men were wounded. A driver, a national serviceman, had been seriously burned. A San or Bushman tracker from 3-1 was seriously injured by shrapnel. Captain Rata had been hit in the face. His glasses were shattered. He was bloody, but he refused medical treatment until all his men were attended to. The fuel drums continued exploding for more than an hour afterwards, throwing burning diesel and showering aviation fuel on the men. A column of black smoke reached high into the sky. Then two Puma choppers arrived to bring supplies and they became part of a major casualty evacuation process. Willem Rata refused to climb aboard the Pumas until one of the pilots, who outranked him, ordered him to get in. Lieutenants Jim Savory and Charlie Loxton remained behind to direct the medical evacuation and the cleanup, along with Sergeant Craig. The vehicles continued smouldering for the next day, a dead giveaway to Swapo and Poplar. With their numbers depleted, the officers asked for permission to withdraw, but 3-2 Command refused the request, telling the men to wait until recovery vehicles arrived. This put the small group in significant danger. A patrol later found Swapo tracks nearby, and they requested permission to withdraw once more, and again it was refused. Sergeant Craig then asked for explosives to blow up what was left of their burned vehicles, but this request was also denied. No SADF equipment, whether gutted or not, 
was to be left behind in Angola, so they had to wait for the recovery task team. It was a tense 10 days later that this group of hardy 3-2 recon members eventually withdrew from Angola. And it was touch and go whether they would make it, particularly after Foxtrot Company, which had been dispatched to help protect the recon groups, ran into Swapo landmines placed on the routes. Several of the Foxtrot vehicles were badly damaged, but eventually they located the shot-up recon teams and dragged the burned-out vehicles back across the cutline. An official inquiry later showed that while the recce team's position had been plotted on a map in the Air Force Operations Room, the two Impala pilots had not been told about their deployment, and then naturally assumed the vehicles belonged to the enemy. As all veterans know, sometimes in the Army, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and this was the case leading to friendly fire losses. Offsetting these aggravations were moments where the officers and NCOs and rank-and-file troopies were forced into situations of mutual support and humour. One of these started at Hutspreit Air Force Base back in the Republic and ended at Ondangwa. The armourers of Hutspreit were regarded as the A-team of engineering and pilots were told if they wanted to know anything about their Mirage F-1s, talk to the armourers. The men such as Dainke Furi, Willem Boerter, Alan Dillon and Skippy Skippers often pulled long shifts fixing problems and prepping aircraft. These men were highly respected. Flight Sergeant Dillon, in particular, had a habit of abbreviating ranks. He'd shout Capo instead of Captain, Mage instead of Major, and so on. Early in 1981, they were deployed to Ondangwa from Hutspreit on board a C-130 and taken directly to the bomb dump. An early morning strike the next day called for 180-250 kg bombs to be prepped, fused, and hung under the F-1s, and that meant an all-night slog for the armourers. It was dark in the bomb dump, and Dylan spotted what he thought was an unknown capo standing nearby. He invited the captain over, saying they were short-handed and needed all the help they could get. Dylan said if the pilot helped, then the armourers would show him around the base in the morning and point out the best aircraft. The capo was set to work and helped fuse and load these heavy bombs all night until dawn, when the sky brightened, Dylan saw the shoulder boards on the officer. Only then did he realize that the man he had press-ganged into helping was Colonel Speaker Jacobs, the commanding officer of Undangwa. So by February 1982, it was clear that Swapo had changed tactics fundamentally. They were detected in the normally quiet western sector of Angola, north of Kaukaland. First radio intercepts of the enemy military network picked up a report of an aircraft around point zero as it was called by Swapo, flying from Shinonya to Uyona. The SADF were puzzled. No air traffic had been seen over these locations, and they had no idea at this stage where Point Zero was. Then an Oshikati-based officer realized that Swapo used phonetic pronunciation of place names, and Uyona was actually Iona, further to the east. The flight was thought to be the Red Cross from Lubango via Baosh Dostigrish along the Kuneni River to Rukana, then onwards to Anjiva. Swapo had spotted the aircraft on the ground from point zero and reported it. This meant Swapo had to be somewhere along the route taken by the Red Cross plane. The spot they called point zero had taken on a new significance because it was west of the heavily protected Avambalan region. Plan was obviously trying to outflank the South Africans. The big problem for Swapo, though, was the people of Kaukaland were not their friends, there was very little sympathy because Swapo was presumed, rightly or wrongly, 
to be dominated by Ovambos, and Kaukalanders and Ovambolanders did not always see eye to eye. All of this was setting up one of the most remarkable battles between Swapo and the SADF, which was going to be called Operation Super. More than 200 planned fighters were going to be confronted by a single SADF platoon, but unfortunately for plan, the platoon was comprised of 3-2 battalion soldiers. What happened next is for next episode. Please head over to my website abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, pass paid. Thank you.